Welcome to another episode of Liberty Clubroid Radio. I believe this is episode 12, and our guest today is no stranger to podcasts. Uh, Dr. Travis Wyman is with us for this episode, and I know Matt and I are excited because we're going to be talking about oddballs today. In particular, we're going to be talking about the Asiatic kukri snakes and the African beak snakes. But before we get into that, uh, we're just going to give you our updates like we do at the beginning of every show. So, how you feeling, Matt? <laughs> oh, man, I feel like I have a vice on my head. Um, you know, it's it's funny how weather affects so many different principles of physiology, but you know, coming from 70 degrees to 30 degrees overnight Mm -hmm. really puts a number on your sinuses. Yeah. Matt warned me earlier before we started recording that he may be a little loopy for this one. So got to forgive him. Everybody gets sick. Sorry, bud. Have you still been doing your chaotic nomadic lifestyle? Is that a contributing factor? Oh, yeah. Uh, No, not so much. I really think it's just the weather, Mm -hmm. to be honest with you. Um, but next week I'll be in East Michigan, West Michigan, and then following week I'll go from Wisconsin to Illinois to Kentucky. Holy. So it's been, uh, quite the trip if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've been home for a couple of weeks since the Florida trip. And then next week's the big trip. Um, I have a graduate student who is part of our zoo science grad program. And uh, she wanted to do her master's degree on sloths. And I was like, okay, we can do that. So she's going to be studying enrichment strategies for sloths. And that required us to find a lot of sloths. And the best place to find a lot of sloths is somewhere in Central South America. So Hale and then one of my other graduate students, Aaron, and I are heading to Costa Rica for eight days. And I'm going to be vetting a potential um, field site for future research. The first half of the trip, we're dropping uh, hail at the sloth sanctuary. And then on the return, um, later part in the week, I'll be hanging out with hail, Aaron, and a ton of sloths. So it should be an interesting week. I'll report back to what we find. And that first half, we're obviously going to be out in it's we're not going to a jungle per se we're going to the dry forest on the pacific slope so the herp diversity isn't the highest it could be but you know when i can go out and potentially find a black tail crebo a boa constrictor a neotropical rattlesnake hognose viper that's really not a bad day so uh that's next week and hopefully we stumble into some stuff but it's been kind of nice, I have to admit, being home for like two and a half, three weeks. Um, I know you don't know the feeling, <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway, getting kind of settled. Yesterday was maddening trying to get all the grading I had backed up into grade books and making tests for this coming week. So I'm happy that we are here today to talk about some snakes because I'm definitely ready to just chill out a little bit before you know the madness of leaving the country hits me. Uh, so I guess herp updates, snake updates. Um, at the beginning of last last episode, I mentioned how my Lampropeltis, the king snake addiction, nothing was really happening. And it was like, they heard me because within 24 hours of me making that statement, I checked and I had breeding all over the place. So 
I should absolutely be producing Florida Kings. I don't know how I wouldn't have produced Florida Kings, but now it's just nice to know that confirmed locks have been observed. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've got various pitchophis breeding at the university, corn snakes out the wazoo. Uh, hognose snakes, definitely going to be producing those. And hopefully by the time I get back from this trip, my second clutch of water cobra, false water cobra eggs is on the ground. Um, one of my ladies had her prelay shed and they're kind of funky. They'll, they'll shed. And then usually they'll lay within two weeks of that shed. But this particular individual has gone up to four post, uh, prelay shed. And that gets a little bit, you know, you start immediately thinking about egg binding at the end of that second week. And then the end of the third week, you're like, oh, God, is this, do we have 24 eggs stuck up in there? And then usually about the time when I'm not sleeping over it, we walk in and to school and there's a perfect clutch of like 20 plus eggs sitting in the enclosure. So I'm trying to calm myself down and just accept the fact that this is her way of doing things. So anyway. So I, we, we have that. And then uh, other thing I feel like is worth discussing is in, I don't know, it was two episodes ago, maybe three. I mentioned that I had a, a blotched king snake die in brumation, a big female. And I put a post up on our Facebook page about it and put it in a couple places. And it's been shared a bunch. And a lot of people are messaging me about it. Uh, but basically, this animal, I bought her sight unseen in the October Tinley show. And uh, the, the guy who picked her up for me said, she's fat. I mean, she's like got rolls. And I thought, well, that could be a... No, that's not a good thing. But maybe she's not as fat as we thought she was. And then I got her and she was definitely obese. And when she died, I thought, what the hell? I'll just see how big her fat bodies were. And the images that I put up, you can see, they basically go from her cloaca to her throat. <laughs> um and her reproductive tract. I didn't put pictures up of this because I wanted to confirm I knew what I was looking at before I blasted it across the interweb. But I'm fairly positive, like her oh, fallopian tubes, oh, um, or sorry, oviducts, uh, uh, ovaries, that whole reproductive system was also just loaded with adipose tissue. So uh, most of the people are like, thank you. Some people retaliated and said that you're promoting this our snakes are too fat don't feed your snake mentality that's rolling around the hobby right now and i'm certainly not doing that i'm just simply letting people know this is what happens when you feed a king snake one or two mice a week for its entire life like you just can't do that so uh some people asked and requested that we do a feeding episode or just talk about the physiology of how snakes digest and ontogeny and all that and I was thinking that's probably worth doing. And I thought, given your background, Matt, that that would be something you'd be into. So I don't know. You think we should do that? Yeah, I think it'd be an interesting episode, especially the way that fat accumulates in reptiles is it's very different from humans. Yeah, completely different process. It's used for a completely different thing. So expect that sometime, I'm going to say, in the next year. I'm not going to hold us to anything. Any time frame, given the life that we live. So, uh, but that's my updates um, and the the pods update. So, you have anything to report? Well, I mean, for the most part, I've been pairing 
a number of animals this year. I've, I've really cut back on pairings this year, specific to different species of which animals I wanted to produce. Something of which, you know, goes into the ethics and morality of breeding reptiles, right? You know, in terms of selectively breeding, but also sometimes animals need an off cycle too as well. Um, something that I think from the physiology of these animals, you know, more than likely these animals aren't breeding every year in the wild. And it's something we take for granted in terms of the length of captive husbandry for each one of these species. So really been kind of focusing on that nature. Um, did receive the first clutch of cocci eggs for this nice. year, last night, which was pretty cool coming home and going through things. But it's one of those things that, you know, we've talked about too, in terms of barometric pressure, right? And that jump, mm -hmm. if you will, from that barometric pressure, likely pushed that animal because that animal hadn't even done her prelay shed either. Oh, wow. So, so really something interesting too, and, and notable at least to pay attention to your animals, especially during breeding season, especially during some of those cycles. Um, other than that, it's just been compact with kind of traveling, coordinating things. Um, these next two weeks are, are pretty booked up, uh, interviewing someone at our corporate offices for the open position I have. We also have an open position in the Twin Cities area in Minneapolis. If anyone's looking for a position that relates to science and hands-on science too as well um try to do something zach does <laughs> and promote something outside of the podcast yeah. but other than that you know these next two weeks i'll be traveling with one of our mobile labs where we'll be visiting customers um, specific to microscopy hardness testing elemental analysis um so it'll be really fun because the mobile lab is fully functional and my job is basically working in what i call um you know, dirty jobs, if you will, because in this bus, you know, you'll go anywhere from a food processing plant, a dog food, manure plant, a steel mill, an automotive facility. So it's really cool to see all those different types of applications take suit. Awesome. But yeah, so it'll be fun. Two weeks um, jam packed with visits and travel throughout the Midwest region. But that's kind of what I signed up. Exactly. For, so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But other than that, I mean, it, it's just, you know, my weekends are kind of my sanctuary time where I spend a lot of time in the snake room, cleaning, feeding, and then checking things during the week when I am home. Um, because that is an important aspect when you have a, a larger collection. You need to monitor things appropriately and, and coordinate things associated to that. Heck yeah. I, I don't know. Here's a question. So when you leave, is there anybody in the house that kind of just, I don't want to say checks the, the animal. So when I leave, my wife has the best sense of smell ever, which is insanely <laughs> unfortunate for me. Like I'm talking, yeah. a mouse sits in a cage for less than 24 hours, just starts to begin the decom process. And I'm getting text messages and phone calls and like something's, you know, and it seems like whenever I leave on a big trip, by me being trip, I mean, I'm like, I'm gone for like five, six days. It's almost like the snakes are like, bah, ha, ha, this is the day we regurgitate on the first day he's gone. Yeah. Like, I, literally. So is there some, so I am trying to get my son who's 13 
to be able to like save this for both of us and just deal with the damn mouse. Um, do, do you have anybody to do that or is it just let her ride and it is what it is? Cause I mean, let's be real. Everybody that has snakes, a large collection of snakes, more than 10 snakes. This happens. This is just the nature of the beast. Doesn't mean you're a bad keeper. I mean, we as human beings might eat something one day that we've eaten our entire lives and just doesn't sit right. So we got to get rid of it. So that's just a fun little aside. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I do have a friend that actually monitors and checks in during the week if I'm gone for, you know, five days in a row, but typically I won't feed animals if I know I'm going to be gone more than 72 hours. Oh, there you go. And I, Mm -hmm. So I do that purely because if some an animal is going to regurgitate, it would likely be within that 72-hour time frame. So I do type, yeah. typically coordinate that. So for instance, I'm feeding today. I'm gone Monday. I'll be home Tuesday. And then I'll be gone Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And back Friday afternoon. Gotcha. So it works out. Um, but I've been down that road <laughs> before where you come home and it's like, what happened <laughs> while I was yes. gone? <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, especially, you know, in our conversations with many of the personalities that we've had on, um, most people now have an understanding that colubrids do typically oh. feed potentially more frequently, mm -hmm. which means their digestive tract is running a little bit more frequently. So it's something to pay attention to. But, you know, Planning and coordinating things of that nature, I think, played an yeah. important part when you travel for work. Um, you know, Clint Bartley, we've had on. Clint travels for work, too. But he does have someone that watches after his collection, including his wife. Um, they kind of checks in on animals periodically while he's traveling. Uh, my biggest fear is actually water. Yeah. And because water can build up bacteria, which leads to mouth rot. Um, leads to another number of other aspects, you know, typically even when we see some of the pictures uh, related to um, bacteria infections on the skin, the epidermis of snakes, especially in rhino rat snakes, it's typically the animal had gotten too cold, its enclosure was too wet, or there was bacteria within the water itself. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, it's something... Yeah, I, I do something similar and didn't even realize it because I knew I was going to be gone for the week. And it's like, well, normally I do the, all the feeding on Saturday and Sunday because obviously that's day off. But I did the feeding on Thursday night. Yeah, I got home and was like, oh, God, I don't want to you know, deal with this. But I dealt with it. Um, and so all the animals got fed so that they could get – if they're going to regurge, they usually do it within 48 hours. So, And I have right. one – um, king snake here right now that I've tested her multiple times for crypto. She does not have crypto. She does not have Giardia. I don't know what the hell. I just think that she's got a sensitive stomach. I mean, that that's literally it. Uh, but she's my sneak puker. So, you know, I'm like, all right, it's been days. And then sure enough, and that's the one that got me earlier in the week. So anyway, she's just She's been fed her small prey items. Um, they, they're down, so I think we're good to go. So hopefully this trip I'm gone. The only thing that worries me is I've got a bunch of grow outs, um, and I do like to kind of keep them on a normal feeding schedule. Uh, so those are the only things that I am going to feed. Um, 
today, and I don't leave till Monday. So hopefully, if anything's going to happen, but nothing's been going down with them. Knock on wood. So anyway, all right, that was a fun little bit of Calibre keeping. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're ready to move on to introduce our guest. You cool with that? I'm good. Alrighty. So we are pleased to have the how will we say this? Um, visiting professor for both THP and NPR when it comes to all things genetics, Dr. Travis Wyman, with us today. Uh, Travis has done several podcasts where he enlightens us in uh, the role of genetics and morphs, and I've learned quite a bit from listening to Travis's podcast about that subject because I'm not really a morph guy, but that doesn't mean I don't like the biology behind it. I think it's pretty cool. But for this episode, I thought it would be cool to focus on two of Travis's loves and have an oddball-focused uh, pod today. And so what we're going to be talking about with Travis is kukri snakes, which he's definitely known for within the hobby, uh, genus Ligodon. And then if we have time at the end, we're going to slide in there some Ramphiophis, the beak snakes, which he's also known for keeping because he talks about them all the time whenever he's on podcast. So with that being said, Travis, how are we doing? We're doing all right, gentlemen. How are you this morning? We're we're good. We're talking about snakes. We're not at work. So you know <laughs> this is a positive. Yes, this is a positive. <laughs> okay. So normally at this point we do the kind of classic how did you get your start in reptiles? But Travis has been on so many podcasts that if you just kind of dive into the library of some of those you can certainly find out how he got his, you know, his origin story with this, but it's very similar to, you know, Matt and I, where basically your classic biology oriented kid slash let's just be real geek that really liked, you know, all things reptile. So what I thought we would do is rather than ask that question, we can ask um, the question of why colubrids? What about, I know that you've keep, you know, you have boas, the rubber boas and the calabars. You obviously keep pythons with the ball pythons and the genetics. And um, I think you even have a scrub rolling around your, your house right now. And that's not loose. It's in a cage. Um, <laughs> it's but, in a cage. What, but when you have that kind of diversity, obviously the clue, the colubrids are going to be scratching an itch that maybe the other species don't. So let's just talk a little bit about your general why you keep colubrids, what about colubrids you like compared to other snakes, what niche they fill in your collection? Um, well, I actually kind of started with colubrids. Um, so my first snake was a corn. Okay. And then um, when I finally started, you know, diversifying out, and getting into more snakes than just having one or two. Um, I had what I called my Holy Trinity, which was a Chondro, a gray banded King and a blackhead. Um, and I lucked into a Chondro cause I just happened to through my other random hobby of carnivorous plant keeping met up with a guy at Atlanta botanical who was also a carnivorous plant and herper guy. And he had a chondro that he was moving out. So I picked that up and then 
when I got that, I was like, you know, I'm an adult now and I can do these things. I'm going to try and complete this trinity of three snakes that I have always really enjoyed. And so I immediately dove into what's the next thing I can find. And blackheads at the time, you know, when you're a grad student, money is not... Throwing $3,000, $3,500 at a blackhead is not really an option for a grad student. But, you know, throwing a couple hundred to get... uh, and Alterna was not out of my league. So I tracked down a really nice uh, black gap animal that I enjoyed and picked her up. And I still have her. And that snake has been a little bit through the ringer four, five years ago. She developed a kidney tumor. And I sent her to a vet friend of mine. He hooked that out, sent her back to me after she'd recovered a bit and she's still going strong. Um, never got a chance to breed her before that and I'm not going to breed her now because mm-hmm. that's just a stress that I don't want to put on her, but she's still trucking along. Um, later I picked up an Annery male. So I've got them. And then I just have always kind of plunked along looking at other weird and different things. Um, you know, the, the ball pythons I got into because, yeah, I like to play with genetics and that's fun. Um, but I still had that soft spot for colubrids and oddball things. And so I would always dig around in those little weird corners of Morph Market and digging around in those weird corners of Morph Market. One day I saw the Teoman Island Kukris and I kind of went, I need this because they just look cool. Um, for those who aren't familiar with them, the Tiamat Islands are bright red, like just fire engine red snakes with sort of golden orangey banding on them. And I, I don't know what I, I just, it really caught my eye and struck a fancy with me. So, um, I talked to the guys at Outback who had them at the time and it wasn't fast enough on the draw, but they knew that I was looking. So when they then got some imports in, which are the mainland brown form, um, they gave me a call and I went down to a show to check them out and came back with a trio of those. And at the same time, they had just gotten a bunch of, African imports in and they showed me some beach snakes and I was really impressed with the adults they had. And then they pulled out a little cup that had a couple of captive hatched babies from a gravid female that had come in and dropped. And they intrigued me enough to pick those up at the same time. So I came home with five new snakes to play with and kind of the rest of the history. (laughs) Yeah. So, so Travis, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, other than those two, do you have any other oddball colubrids laying around your house? Um, no, not right now. Um, I have, well, no, I lie. I have a, a scaphiophis that I'm trying to acclimate in that is being very resistant to wanting to do that. But given how high stress they are, that's not a huge surprise. And 
generally they come in kind of rough. So getting them established is a bit of a difficult process. Um, I have also tried to establish some Mizodon and uh, unfortunately found out that they, um, like indigos, are hypersensitive to external treatment for parasites. So the, you know, put a tiny bit of front line on your hands with gloves and wipe it on the snake. Yeah, that causes massive neuronal issues with them. So all of mine crashed rapidly after that. Um, so unfortunate learning experience there, but basically nobody had ever really kept Mizodon that I could find. And so I was taking a stab in the dark and didn't get very far with them. But if I ever get the opportunity to try those again, I probably will. And this time I will find a different way to externally treat them for <laughs> topical ectoparasites. You know, Travis, that's an interesting point. Um, and I, I just want to comment off of that too as well, because with the interest over the years in file snakes, especially wild caught animals, um, being at the price point of which they are, they also do not respond very well to any type of topical treatment, as well as the use of um, preventamite, you know, even being around, they're very sensitive um, to a number of different aspects of that. So I think that's very courageous of you to provide that information because, you know, it's yeah. something as keepers we need to be aware of too as well. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, it's going back to what, um, you know, Zach was saying about this, that king that he got that was just a fat obese monster. There are aspects of this hobby that just aren't pretty. Um, it does a lot more to share yeah. that so that we learn, you know, hiding it behind closed doors doesn't do anybody any favors. You know, do I feel like shit when I end up with a dead animal or, you know, five dead animals? Yeah, I do. But this is how we learn, you know. So, yeah. Did all my Mizodon die? Yeah, they did. Did they all get massive neuronal symptoms and start, you know, convulsing and twitching a day after I treated them with, you know, the front line? Yeah. So I would rather people know that I did that, you know, because I was operating in the dark. How would anybody else know? Now it's out there. Now people know if anybody else gets them in, okay, I need to treat them with something. But I remember that Travis said that all of his crashed after he did this. So I need to look at a different technique or a different methodology for how to treat them. And this is how we learn. This is how we go yep. forward. And this is how we grow with so with our it's you know it's a mistake but it's not a mistake that i'm gonna hide and shuffle away because better that i learn and get it out there for everybody else to learn too than to have it you know stored away in a little box that i hide under the bed and then the next person who tries also kills them and the next person who tries also kills them and then what we have is well nobody can get these established they're just trash snakes i don't think they're trash snakes i think they'd be very very cool to have in the hobby I just think we need to learn. And that's the way it is with a lot of these oddballs is they're so rarely kept. And most of what you're getting is imports that there's a really steep learning curve. Yeah. And, it, and if you're trying to establish those, I know Matt has lots of experience down this line. As soon as you 
start to let the thought creep into the back of your brain. Like, okay, I think they're good. That's when something happens. So I, I had, we'll, we'll just keep going with this little tangent and we'll get back to Kukri's. But a lot of people know that I had the um, Erythrolampris typhlus, the velvet swamp snakes, I think is the common the velvet name. Swamp snakes, yeah. Uh, and I was literally just snagging every one that I could see. Uh, I have none currently. Because every single one of them, I acquired four or five of them, uh, would reach this point where they were taking uh, mice or tilapia pieces. They, they had great body condition. Everything looked fantastic. They were eating on their own. Um, they were really easy to assist feed, but I always wondered like how much stress am I causing by grabbing the snake by the back of the head and putting this thing in its mouth as this large hairless monkey and then putting it in a plastic bin and shutting the door. Like I know that doesn't happen in Suriname. So anyway, but all of them got to a point where they were doing what I would think constituted great. I never got to a point where I could do any medications on them because I just wanted to get them going. And each one of them just randomly opened the drawer dead. So uh, that project has now had a pin put in it and other people can go down that path, but I will flat out say, and it's in the book, uh, on in the Erythrolampris chapter, that when you think everything is okay, there's so many things going on inside that snake you don't you cannot see <laughs> um, that it's effectively doing a really good job of letting you think it's okay and healthy. And, you know, from its perspective, I'm a prey item that can flee, so maybe leave me alone. But ultimately, they just all crashed out. And now uh, the other guys, the Pacillagyrus, the uh, what the hell do we call those things in the hobby? The yellow-bellied Paraguayan water snakes—I think that's what we call them. Um, they're doing great. Like they're, in fact, right here is showing them. This is like the prize of my collection. It's a freaking male. It took me a year and a half to find a male. Uh, and once you get a male, those things drop. Uh, oh, Jesus, fifty eggs a year. Yasser. It's been very, it's with Spitfire has been very successful with them. Um, he's the only guy I know of that has a male other than that one in that box. So, uh, anyway, more on that later, which is crazy. I, I think I had 3.2 at one yeah. point, and I was like, oh, I just need to move on from these because they're fish eaters, and I didn't mm -hmm. feel like defrosting fish all the time. They kind of vaporize now, man. you can hardly find it. <clears throat> so, okay. I mean, th that's what happens. Things yeah. come in fits and starts. People get interested, then they die off. People get interested, and then they die off. I mean, we're seeing that with a lot of things. Um, calabars. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing calabars yeah. all the time, like 10, 10, 12 years ago, and then they just dropped off the planet. Um, and they started coming in again within the last year or so, a couple, three, uh, I guess two or three years. And, you know, with my interest in rubber boas, when I started seeing them again, I was like, yeah, I, I got to get these because they're basically just African rubber boas. And so I started picking them up and we're seeing another boom with those. They're, I mean, they're turning up all over the place now. Interesting. So fits and starts. Okay. So back to Kukri's. <laughs> back to Kukri's. <laughs> uh, the, back to Kukri's and word yes. So when you <laughs> brought your Kukri's home, what was your, how did you go about getting them established since they were imports? And I think it's a fair statement that the majority of them in the hobby are imports. Is that 
fair or not fair? Uh, it depends. Okay. So there are a couple of people who are breeding them. Um, the ones that are being bred the most are the Tiam and <clears throat> Island, which are the bright red ones that I mentioned. So if you're seeing red ones, those are absolutely captive bred. Um, Teoman shut their borders back in, I want to say, 97. So you cannot get wild-caught Teomans. Um, so if you're seeing a bright red Kukri, that's a captive bred for sure. Um, if you're seeing the brown ones, those are most likely going to be imports, yeah, especially if they are adults. Gotcha. Um, very few people have been breeding the mainland forms. Um, I have a small clutch of eggs from two mainland animals incubating right now. Um, I had some last year. Uh, gravid female just dropped after she came in, and those eggs incubated out. Um, so... Yeah, any of the brown ones that you see are going to be captive or are wild caught animals. Um, if you find the brown babies, those are probably going to be captive hatched. Maybe one or two people are producing fully captive bred animals that way, but most people don't really find as much interest in the brown ones, so they're not breeding them as much. Cool. I thought the brown ones were cool. Yeah. Oh, I like I the brown ones too. I mean, yeah. my my collection right now is three point two, no, two point three, and three of them are brown and two of them are red. So, well, before that's a good point. Before we get into the husbandry and all that, what makes a kukri snake cool? Let's just do a little bit of their biology <laughs> because everything. We, yeah, <laughs> we haven't actually talked about how they got their name, where they live. So let's just kind of cover that natural history piece right now. So there has to have been something yeah. when you were investigating Oligodons, the genus, uh, where you were like, okay, yeah, after learning this, these things need to be in my house. So what led you to that conclusion? All right. So like I said, first, it was just the look of them. Um, they... They almost look, I don't know, they're kind of viperish looking um, while still having that very colubrid body shape. Uh, then I started reading up on them and about what they were and everything, and it just became kind of a, yeah, I need these because they're just too damn weird. Um, so the, the generic name for them, kukris, the common name for them, comes from the Indian kukri dagger, which is a knife that's got sort of a bent swept back blade and they get that name because they have three enlarged teeth in the back of their jaws on each side um, that have that similar kukri shape. And what they use those teeth for is kind of gruesome in a lot of different ways. Um, they use them to open eggs um, mainly reptile eggs, but they can also open bird eggs through cantilever action. Uh, they also use them. Uh, there's a paper out where they will go up to larger animals that are larger than they could reasonably swallow. In this case, they were talking about toads. They slice the toad open along its belly 
or its flank using that tooth, then they crawl in and eat the organs of the toad and then just leave the outside of the toad as a little empty husk, which is great if you're dealing with something like a cane toad that's toxic and will kill you Mm -hmm. because now you're not eating the toxic part of the toad. Um, But they will also do that with just basically any prey item that is large enough that they can't swallow it, but they can get into it. Um, They will also scavenge that way. Uh, Almost 10 years before that toad report came out, there are captive observations of a guy in Germany who tried to feed his animals uh, frozen thawed mice that were too big. Oh, God. (laughs) But... But the snake, the same way, it gutted the mouse and just ate all the organs out and left the little empty husk of the mouse behind. Um, That's endearing. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like I said, these things are awesome. They're just they're horribly brutal, nasty creatures. Um, and that would make them cool. Um, so, yeah, as I, as I read up on these things and the stuff that they do, it's just they caught me as just being so charismatically different and horror show <laughs> that I, I wanted to have them. Um, you know, they're definitely not for everybody. If you like to hold your animals, these are not the animals for you. Um, they are, they are very foul tempered. Um, the, the wild cots are definitely more so, but even the captive bred ones, like, my babies straight out of the egg will just curl up and do that S curve and show their belly and open their mouths and gape at you. They are ballsy. They, you know, again, straight out of the egg, they will bite you. And, you know, they don't care. They know that they can inflict a wound. And so they defend themselves. Absolutely. And, you wouldn't think that a snake whose head was the, the size of your pinky, the tip of your pinky, would be able to do as much damage as they do. But those teeth that they have are exceedingly sharp and they know how to use them. And I know that from experience <laughs> because I've I've been hit a couple of times and you bleed. You bleed a lot. Um, I don't there's no real science studies in it, but I'm almost positive that they have an anticoagulant in their saliva because mm-hmm. I, you get hit and you just, you don't stop bleeding for an hour or more. And that's why yeah, my, my first experience. Yeah. Right. <laughs> my first experience with them was, I want to say 2010 at an NARBC show. I think the guy who brought him in, he, goes by like samurai reptiles or something he usually brings in um coordinata um the horn frogs from japan mm-hmm. and he had a group of babies on his table and i went to i i was interested interested in them and they're i think from japan those animals they're, they're just typically brown if memory serves me correct i forgot what island they come from but um but I remember going to sex them and I got nailed more on those things than any other colubrid <laughs> I've ever handled before. And there is something in their saliva. And I say that because I do have allergies because I lost feeling in two of my fingers on my hand. 
So either it hit a nerve or there's something else with those animals. Neat. Yeah, I haven't had any numbness factor. You know, I've I've heard some people say that, you know, again, there the uh, there's there hasn't been a lot of real work done with them in the scientific field. Um, you know, I've heard some people say they do have a Duveroys. I've heard other people say they don't. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I guess I bleed like a stuck pig, but. I, I never got any numbness or anything behind them, but it it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, almost all of these epistoglyphs have got yep. something. Yeah. So now that we've gone over why you love them, let's talk about keeping. So when you <laughs> when you brought those animals home from Outback, uh, what was your strategy of with? I'm assuming they went into a quarantine period. Uh, yes. What did you um, do? They went into quarantine. Um, so I treated them externally. Again, I did that, you know, a little bit of frontline on some gloves, not a lot, just gave them a once over, which, you know, is real fun because <laughs> they get a hold of you. They strip right through that glove into your hand. And let me tell you, frontline stinks like a bitch in an open wound. Um, I set them up in tubs at room, just ambient room temperature. Um, so in my quarantine room probably runs about mid seventies or so. Um, and the species that we see the most in the hobby is, uh, Oligodon purpurescens. So these come from, you know, Thailand area, Malaysia area. And while a lot of people hear that and think, okay, so they, they these guys like it hot. They do not like it hot. Um, they're very crepuscular. They're very fossorial. They dig and they burrow and they like to be underground and hidden a lot. So they actually prefer to be in that, you know, mid 70s to mid 80s region. It gets hotter than that and they get very, very temperamental and don't like it and they go downhill fast. Um, they also don't like to be too dry. So... With most quarantine animals, I will set them up on like a paper towel or something. Um, with these, knowing that they liked to dig, it probably wouldn't be secure on just a paper towel. I went with a very thin layer of uh, just that, you know, loose cocoa peat, cocoa mm-hmm. earth. And I kept it damp, not sodden. Um, and then just out of an abundance of caution, I threw... A layer of leaf litter in again because I wanted them to feel secure yeah. to be able to establish in. Um, keeping them like that makes it difficult to do things like fecals and stuff. So I just kind of monitored the animals to see how they looked and what they were doing. Um, one of mine did develop sort of cyst looking things on the outside of her body, which I took to be some type of, you know, nematode or worm type of infection. Um, and then another one I noticed when I was checking her over, you know, just in one of my check the animal over every couple of weeks. Um, I noticed what looked like a thread worm or something in behind her Mm. spectacle. Yeah. So at that point, 
I did a worm treatment. Um, I know the go-to for that is, uh, oh, damn, what's the stuff? It's the one that I never used because I used ivermectin. Ivermectin is <laughs> a much heavier hitter, uh-huh. but it's got a more broad effect. Um, Panicure, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. I did not use Panicure. Panicure tends to be the go-to. It tends to be a little bit more tolerated by most animals. It probably would have worked, but I I had Ivermectin on hand. I also know how to dose it. But again, Ivermectin is exceedingly toxic if you screw yep. up. I don't recommend it for just anybody to use. Like You have to dilute it almost one part in a thousand. Yeah, and, and in Travis's day job, listeners... He's diluting things all the time. He's a molecular biologist. Yeah, yeah. So in, in, in my day, do not go in out my and get job, I'm, I'm used to working with pipettes and things. Yeah. <laughs> so doing doing one to a thousand, one to ten thousand dilutions is it's it's common for me, and I have the ability to you know make those dilutions just second naturedly. But even then, I double checked with my veterinarian to make sure that, you know, my math was right, my dosage was right, and everything before I did this, because I know how toxic ivermectin can be. And I went on even the the light side of the dosage recommended, just because I did not want to overdo it. Um, my adults, as I was, you know, all these wild-caught adults that I was establishing, they all immediately were taking quail eggs, just lop the top off the quail egg and put it in. They come over, they suck it right out. Um, that made it very easy for me because after I made the ivermectin dilution, I took a, uh, a tuberculin syringe or a diabetic syringe, and I just injected the volume of ivermectin into there. And then I gave them that, and they ate it that way. So I didn't have to fight them. I didn't have to pry their mouth open and tube dose them. It was just a very easy way to get it into them. Um, With all of the animals, you know, the one with the little cysts on her body, those cleared out. The one that that I saw the little threadworm behind her eye, that cleared out. And they established down fine. Um... I know that people generally say quarantine should be like three months. I think three months for wild caught animals is very short. Um, My typical quarantine for a wild caught animal is at least six months. I have gone up to 14. um, Just because it's not just a matter of they look healthy. It's that they look healthy. They have established eating regularly they're stable, they're shedding fine, you know. I want to make sure that it, when I do move the animal finally into my actual room, it's not going to be so traumatic that it throws the animal completely back off. Um, the kukris, I had all of them in quarantine for eight and a half months before I moved them. Um, and again, that was for, you know, them to be shedding regularly and cleanly looking their fecal matter just to be looking more normal and not, you know, every once in a while I would find a fecal and it would look just kind of off or something. You know, I waited until they 
they just started looking basically like how, you know, my my alterna would look mm-hmm. when I would see them in the cage. They were they were more comfortable. They had calmed down. They, while still flighty, weren't you know freaking out and bashing against the back of the tub trying to get away from me every time I opened it. Um, at that point, I moved them into two by two cages. Okay. Um, they, again, like I said, very crepuscular and fossorial, so they have a nice deeper litter of uh, equal parts um, leaf litter mulch, hydrated wood pellets, which basically just turn yep. into like a sawdust. And um, that loose cocoa peat, cocoa earth, that stays really light and lofty. And then I add about 30% milled sphagnum moss. Okay. That helps retain moisture. Put that in and then, again, just huge layer of leaf litter so that they can, you know, hide under that. And then I throw in a bunch of places for them to hide. Uh, cork flats, um, cork rounds. I have like some of those hanging finch Mm -hmm. nests. I take those and I just throw them in there because they're just little good bundly ball areas for them to hide in. And then I planted in a bunch of low lying plants. So wandering Jew, uh, English Ivy, stuff like that. You know, it grows low, it vines around, it can stand being beaten up a little bit and dug up and not get really damaged. And, you know, I basically put them in there and for the most part, I don't see them very much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's normal because their their main activity time is, you know, once the lights go out and stuff. Uh, now, every once in a while, they'll make an appearance or, you know, I'll look in and I'll see just a head sticking out of one of those finch nests or something. Um, or, you know, if there's a cork round, I can see a head that peeks out from the cork round. But they they tend to hide out most during the day. They get very active at night or the evening so it's definitely a naturalistic strategy for you Uh, that's how i go with them um in fact that's how i do most of my stuff pretty much only my ball pythons exist in a tub system um but the the kukri thrive under these naturalistic looking ones i do know some people who just keep them in tubs uh they tend to use cypress mulch because it holds humidity gives them something to dig in doesn't get like too wet and boggy and swampy, which the the really fine cocoa earth can do. Um, but in a cage, the cocoa earth stuff works really well. Travis, off of that too, with your keeping style, are you keeping them in communities? I'm not. Um, they, the only time I, I put them together is if I'm pairing them. They are, they don't seem to do well when paired together on a more long-term basis, at least from everything that I have read on them. Um, Male-male combat is exceedingly frequent, but male-female combat is also common. Um, They seem to be kind of territorial. Interesting. So they have their established space, and they will fight to maintain their established space. So I, I generally keep them as solos um and when i pair them i pair them in a neutral space i take both animals out of their cages and put them in 
you know, a little a pairing box, basically. And I watch them to make sure they don't start mauling each other, because if that happens, you want to break them apart. Um, they they like to bite and attack more the tail end. In fact, you will see a lot of these wild cots when they come in, their tails are mangled. And that's from combating each other. They bite and they they bite to damage um, the females. Their tails are more jacked up usually because the males try to get away to prevent that because of how, you know, the yeah. hemipenes are tucked away in the tails. They know that if they fight too long, they're going to risk having their hemipenes damaged. So they they try to escape and get away from that. But I've, I've I mean, one of my females that I got who's wild caught, her tail is just mangled. It looks like it's been through a garbage disposal. Hmm. So. So as far as heating is concerned, you said that you were keeping things ambient. Do you have like an LED light on them? Any lights on them? I have an LED light. What yeah. Kind of um, it's just, um, it's not even a really high intensity one again, because they're, you know, a more crepuscular fossorial species. So it's just like a flat, uh, aquarium LED. Mm hmm about 12 inches uh, i've just got it hooked up in the top um i have it on a 12 and 12 because that goes with their natural light cycle and you know my room my full snake room it gets a bit of a seasonal flux because it's down in the basement um so in you know in the summer it probably gets up to mid 80s in the winter it, it drops down to you know low to mid 70s gotcha so let so Travis, one thing I would like to talk about a little bit on this is related to feeding. And I say that purely because so from some of the people that I've chatted with on these animals, now that they're on their second, third generation of animals, they've noticed that sometimes the animals will be doing great and then just go, you know, in terms of snap. And and the reason why I ask about the feeding behavior, um, the type of prey you're offering your specific animals, whether it's just specifically eggs or if you're mixing in some protein, but I'm more curious about your thoughts on microflora and whether or not you think there might be missing too as well with these captive animals. Um, I think, uh, I think the rapid decline that we're seeing in, um, a lot of the captive bred stuff is two reasons. One, I think part of it may be a little bit of inbreeding depression. Because again, all these captive breds that we're seeing, second, third, fourth generation, are the TM and Island ones. And like I said, TM and closed down. So we're dealing with a bit of a limited gene pool there. Um, the red animals that I produced last year, I did an outcross. I bred a TM and male to a wild caught female and incidentally proved that the red trait is a dominant trait because all the babies hatched out red. Um, so if you see anybody saying that they have clean blood or new blood Tiamans, they're lying. Like I said, Tiaman is closed down. Um, I think that's part of the reason. Um, and that's why I outcrossed. But I also think that a large part of the reason goes back to, again, you know, like Zach's comment about that, that king these animals are not being fed properly in the hobby. Um, they're just being massively pumped full of 
fatty rodents and that's not what they're used to eating that's not what they evolved to eat so we're just we're seeing an obesity problem and that's causing them to die off uh i'm in a kukri group on facebook and some of the animals i see are it it, it hurts my soul <laughs> like i I'm, I'm sure you both have just you've seen those animals that have like the yeah the, the fat frog double triple quadruple chin thing going on it's horrible um you know i i don't push my animals to grow fast you know i have I have babies that are almost a year old and they're nowhere near adult size. There are guys in that group that are posting animals that are a year old and ready to breed females, you know, so they're almost 18 inches, two feet. I, it's just, it's so wrong to me. So I think that that is part of the problem too, is they're just, they're just being pounded and power fed and overdone. Um, I also think maybe people are keeping them too hot and that's just, like I said, that causes a quick decline. Um, you know, I noticed pretty fast when I, uh, where I had my snakes originally, when I positioned the cages, they were actually sitting on top of another cage and the heat from the other cage was overheating the cages and all of mine were just pushed up against the glass. It was the only time I actually saw them out in the day cause they, they didn't like it. Um, and at that point I moved their cages to keep them in a cooler area. Um, microfauna that may help just as like an intestinal gut thing. But I guess I think the biggest thing is properly feeding them. Um, and that goes back to what I said earlier about what they're designed to do and how they're designed to eat. Um, eggs seem to make up a very large part of their diet. Um, I would also argue that they're probably eating arthropods, insects. I wouldn't be surprised if they ate slugs and snails. I haven't tried feeding those, but now that I mentioned it, I might go out and buy a can of snails <laughs> and give it a whirl because why not? Um, and I bet those teeth would be good at getting yeah. through the snail shells. <laughs> um, but I will also, you know, knowing that they'll eat bird eggs or reptile eggs, they're not just coming across, you know, an egg that's infertile. They're going to come across eggs that are for various stages of fertility and development. So what I will do with mine is I have got uh, the reptilinks microlinks. And when I cap a quail egg, I'll take one of those little microlinks, which is only about a centimeter long, and I'll stick it in the egg. And I generally, with those, I use like the quail or the frog or the iguana microlinks. So I'm going with something that isn't really fatty, but still gives, you know, the bone and the actual meat and protein and stuff. And I only do that about once every third or fourth feeding. Because um, I don't want to overload them with, you know, protein or things like that um randomly i will feed them a you know a baby quail every once in a while i might do a mouse pink or something if i have an extra leftover from feeding and you know it's like i fed everybody but i still have pinks that i haven't gone through um but i'm not i'm not feeding them hoppers fuzzies rat pinks things like that because it just 
I, they're not they're not designed for that. They're not designed to take that. So what's your frequency of feeding? So I feed, I don't feed very frequently for them. Um, I feed every couple of weeks usually, um, which is, a you know, it kind of goes against the whole colubrids eat smaller things more frequently. And I probably could do smaller, but, you know, a quail egg is a substantial a meal for these guys. And that's why I space it out. You know, if I were doing like maybe half of a microlink, I might go every three or four days because I'm sure they would burn through that really easily. Um, but, you know, a quail egg a quail egg with a lake is more than enough to give them a couple of weeks. Um, and I also seasonally feed. So I, you know, I feed pretty consistently in spring and summer. Then I taper off in the fall in the winter i'm only feeding like maybe once a month maybe once every six weeks um because again i i try to go as much as i can towards how the natural cycle of things would be for them and you know things don't breed all year every year so you're not always going to find eggs that you can get a hold of or small enough lizards that you can get a hold of or baby birds that you can get a hold of Um, turtle eggs Uh, there's a fascinating study done on another population of these on an island they basically hang out on the beach when the turtles come in Mm -hmm. and as soon as the turtle finishes and sometimes even before burying their nest the females are going in and they stay in the nest until they basically consume everything that they can. But that's the only time they eat all year is during turtle nesting season. That's crazy. That's boom bust feeding in its purest form. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're keeping them in two by twos, LED lighting. Substrate seems to be super important uh, with your keeping strategy. Um, and then we're feeding the animal up single. We're not keeping them together because they beat the hell out of each other. Um, yeah. And then feeding, I don't want to say sparingly, I would think, but bi-weekly with the quail eggs and then putting the micro link in there, but we're avoiding rodents if we can. Is that yes. fair? All right. Yes. Cool. So with that keeping rodents strategy. Are a very, very infrequent yes. thing. With that keeping strategy, then that led to you having captive reproduction, correct? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about that. Um, so it sounds like you kind of did a food cycling strategy versus a thermal cycling strategy to get the eggs. Is that fair? The, the, the room, I mean, it's it's kind of everything. Kind of everything said, my room just goes through a natural cycle in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So I just let that be the natural cooling cycle it's not really a huge change um i also do a moisture cycle oh cool because basically you know going with that area they don't get a huge temperature difference but they do see sort of a monsoon and less monsoon i'm not going to say they have a full-on dry season but they have a they have a wet season and they have a wetter season as it were so (laughs) um during the wetter season i'm misting the cages a couple of days a week, only for about, you know, 30 seconds or a minute. But during the less wet season, 
I'm hitting it for about a minute every seven to 10 days. Gotcha. Um, so I cycle, I kind of, they're getting all these things together as a cycle. Um, and then just looking at, you know, papers and captive keeping from the guys in Europe and also just ecology and when things are turning up there, I started pairing in December, January, which is kind of about the mid of their less wet season, but it times out really well to be the eggs would be hatching during the midst of the actual wet season, which is when you would think yeah. that things would start to be, you know, booming and breeding, especially amphibians and reptiles and stuff. So that's when I started pairing. Um, they lock for a long time, really long time. Uh, my, I had them locked for, I want to say like 50 odd hours Holy. once. Um, and as long as they were locked together, I just left them be in that little box together. As soon as I saw that they were apart and they do go to the opposite ends of that little box, I put them back in the cages. Um, I only paired them three times, once in December, once in January, once in February. And I just kind of left them to their own devices. After that, I didn't really notice any change in behavior in the female, um, which isn't surprising, like I said, given how secretive and hidey heidi yeah. they are. But, you know, when I went in, I still go in and I check them by lifting the flats and the hides and stuff. And I checked her and I noticed that she was constantly underneath this one hide and sort of coiling and spinning to clear an area out, which in hindsight was a pretty good clue for me. And then one week I came down and I lifted it up to check on her and I had a nice little stack of seven eggs. Um, so pulled them out, just set them up in an incubation box, left them at you know room temperature. Again, just basically the box went right on top of her cage. Um, and then, um, almost a month to the day later, I was checking up on her and found a second clutch, which surprised me because nowhere had I read from anybody that they double clutched, but apparently they do. (laughs) How many eggs were in that clutch? Eight as, or yeah, eight. Cool. And then at room temperature... How long till you have babies on the ground? It took, so for the first ones, since those ones hit at about, what, March-ish, that, those ones took about 100 days, I think it was 101 days for them to hatch, but again, you know, March, April, it's still kind of cool in my room, so... Not a surprise that it took them a little longer. The second clutch, which came in April, and the room started heating up a little bit more, they went in 87 days. Oh, gotcha. Um, I have heard of people incubating them at higher temps, you know, 82 or so, and getting them to hatch in 50, 60 days. But 
I don't really feel the need to, again, I, I figure keeping the eggs at around the same temperature as the adults, which they seem to be pretty happy with, is the better way yeah, to do it. Fair. So so now, you-, you know, one thing we we really haven't brought up in any prior episodes, Zach, but I'm kind of curious, too, um, in, in terms of fertility for second clutches, are you seeing 100% fertile eggs? Are you seeing some differences in terms of... Um, ratio or i know i had 100 percent fertility and i didn't see any real difference in sex ratios on them uh let's see the first one i had 3.4 and the second clutch i had 4.4 yeah it's something i'm always curious about because especially with retained sperm you know there's been published studies related to feeding behavior and feeding animals well during that aspect to produce a second clutch. Um, but it's something a lot of people don't really mention in terms of fertility of the number of eggs, especially here where you have an egg eating species, you would think that even you would have some infertility there too, as well, just to promote animals after hatching to provide a natural food source right out of the egg. That's interesting. Yeah. That, you know, that would be, a logical type of thing i would guess but yeah again at the same time if they're hatching you know when you've got a bunch of amphibians or something breeding Mm -hmm. then they can immediately go out and start preying on amphibian eggs which should be really an abundant it's an interesting idea and i hadn't thought of it though yeah and we will definitely have a much like the brumation bonanza episode we're going to have a reproduction episode. We just got way too busy because <laughs> uh, I went down a massive, massive rabbit hole with double clutching. And is this normal? Is this OK? What's going on? How does it happen? Where is the store, the sperm stored? Because I had to do that when I was working with the book. Because it turns out with these South American snakes that I work with, you could probably go so far as to say that it is totally the norm and probably a dare I say it, beneficial thing, but I don't think it's the norm for all colubrid and colubroids. It does make sense where these guys live and the predation pressures that they're experiencing that if they get, if a female ends up finding good real estate and she's had multiple copulations that she produced those eggs just due to the fact that there's a lot of things in that part of Asia where they live that are eating snakes. That's kind yeah. of the, the evolutionary strategy with the South American guys is the exact same. It's a direct response to predation pressure with neonates. But that's a conversation for another day. So now you have, what, 15 baby kukris? Yeah. Little bloodletting monsters. So <laughs> Little bloodletting monsters. So how did you get them up and going? Um, Were there any problems? So not terribly um they all went into tubs um just did the little six quarts um i put them on lightly damped sphagnum moss again tossed in leaf litter for them to be able to hide under and like a small cork flat or something to be able to hide under room temperature and I waited until they had their first shed and then I took quail egg. I beat it up 
and I just used little cups, like little dipping cups. And I put like two to three mils mm-hmm. of egg in there. And, you know, I've, I've got a, like a bird crop feeding syringe. I use that to just suck up the egg and you, they're really nice. Those they've got a dial on them so you can mm-hmm. twist it to how much you want to dose out. So I just, you know, two mils, dose, two mils, dose, two mils, dose, dose, put those little cups in. Um, that worked for about half of them. They would find it and eat it and take it right away. The other half seemed to have difficulty realizing that this was food to eat. So after a couple of failed attempts that way, I took those ones, put them in one of those little deli cups that, you know, we commonly just transport snakes to and from shows and stuff in, put them in one of those again, with just a little layer of sphagnum moss, put the cup in there with them. And that smaller volume, I think just made them realize that, Oh, Hey, there's food here versus the much larger volume of the six quart tub. Cause I mean, these things hatch out only about four or five inches long. So that six quart tub is pretty large for them. And I just think that they probably weren't finding the food cup. So once they realized that it was there in the small deli cup, they would take it down, consume it, be happy, go back into the tub. After a couple times doing that, then I could just put it in the tub and they would seek it out. Sweet. So that sounds really easy. <laughs> I don't know what. Yeah. <laughs> You're not dealing with rodents and pinkies and things that are too big that fit in small heads and all that. Yep. No, none of that. Um, you know, and then after about six months or so, I would take one of those little micro links. I would cut it in half. Cause again, really teeny tiny snakes that we're dealing with. And I would drop that in the cup as well. But some of them would take it and some of them wouldn't. Um, and then at about a year, they have gotten large enough that I'll just, I'll take a quail egg and cap it and put that in there. They won't eat the whole volume of it, but it's not so much that they're intimidated by the full volume of the egg. And now we have Captain Breakout Grease. Thanks to Travis. (laughs) (laughs) And should have more in another couple of months. There we go. (laughs) But they'll be the brown ones. So if you really want the red ones too bad, you're going to have to wait another couple of years. Mm That's why you can order your Kevlar gloves ahead yeah, exactly. of time. You know, you say that, but I I got a pair of those, you know, like cut-proof, stick-proof gloves. <laughs> Son of a bitch went right through it. Really? Right through it. <laughs> Interesting. It was one of the adults, but still, right through it. <laughs> so do we have any final things you want to tell people about Kukri's that are at this point thinking, all right, this might definitely be something I'm interested in. Um, I mean, just be ready for a snake that does not like you at all. It doesn't want to be handled. So if you're looking for something like that, don't, don't get these and expect to be able to do that. Um, I, again, I will caution that, a lot of the ones you're going to be seeing are coming from people who may be pushing them on rodent diets. So 
be prepared that you may have to change the diet of your snake for it to be more healthy. Um, and don't keep them crazy hot. I mean, yes, they're a tropical species, but they don't like being really hot. But they're fun. They sound like <laughs> if you like weird little things, go for it. I, I think the the final thing before we move on to the beak snakes that I want to talk because I, I I remember listening to you on one of the previous podcasts you're on. I don't maybe it was THP. I don't know which one it was, but uh, you had you were talking about the process you went through in gathering information, and I you know before you pulled the trigger and said yeah, and then after you pulled the trigger, and I think that 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 process you know it. It was kind of like preaching the choir with me because that's the process that I a very similar process to what I do. But I know that one of the things you did is you just did this this epic Google Scholar journal article search. And I'm not saying you have to do that per se. But one of the things that I like about you know what we just got done is part of the reason why it, you weren't walking through the show, saw a kukri snake and just bought it. You were you did your homework, you learned about these crazy behaviors they do, th these ecological um, evolutionary adaptations that they have to basically be, a I mean, I think they're like the perfect definition of an oddball colubrid. And, and that kind of led to you appreciating them more to the point where you apparent, you know, it's apparent you like the brown ones just as much as you like the red ones. Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's an element there that when you do that, that kind of nerdy deep dive, uh, it just makes keeping these things so much cooler, especially when you just explain to everyone listening that you give them substrate, put three inches of leaf litter there and barely see them. <laughs> but yes. you know, they're in the box. I mean, it's... <laughs> right. So <laughs> I mean, you know, that leads to just a, a much more rewarding. That's the word I'm looking for. Keeping experience when yeah, you know it's... the whole picture of this animal's biology yeah it's i think it's it's one of i mean they're it's very generalized to say this but there tend to be two two sides to this hobby there's the the paint job side which like the animals for the morphs and the paint jobs and how they look and what they look like and i'm not trashing on those people because again i'm a ball python person <coughs> to some extent as well i i do that as well and i get it and i understand it although like i said i'm kind of moving away from it because just the oddball thing is getting to me more and more then there's the i keep these animals not because of what they look like but because of just what they are they're these unique animals that have you know these just these strange behaviors these oddball behaviors and while it was initially the paint job that caught my eye with the tiamans it was more after i went into that deep dive on them and yeah i went crazy deep dive not necessarily what everybody has to do but you should research some into it before you go just picking up things on a whim especially things that you've never seen before um, that I really, really started to appreciate what they were. And that's why when, you know, Outback called me and said, hey, we got some kukris in. They're the mainland ones. They're brown. They're not like those red ones. I was like, I don't really care. They're 
they're cool animals as they are. And yeah, I really, I really like my Browns. Um, you you wouldn't think that a Brown snake would be this awesome, fascinating thing, but they really kind of are. And they're fantastic in their own right because of their behaviors and their actions and their attitudes and just how they live. And that's my appreciation with, you know, the other half of my collection. It's not so much about paint jobs. It's about the way they behave and how they act and what they do. And that is a perfect way to transition into Ramphiophis, the big snakes, because if you like crazy behaviors, the, uh, (laughs) Lamprophiidae is the family they belong to. Um, Holy mother of God, did they do some weird things? Oh, oh God. Yeah. Did they do weird so, things. Um, before we we get into the keeping of them, I am going to get on my like nerdy taxonomy soapbox here. So, these guys that we're moving on to now uh, are firmly in the Kalubroid camp. A lot of people do not realize that when we talk about beak snakes, they're part of this African, primarily African, uh, family of snakes that's just been recognized in the past 20 years as their own thing um they're wonderfully weird uh some close relatives to the beak snakes so you know uh, a lot of people think that the mad like the leoheterodon the madagascar hognose snakes are just a bigger badder version of a hognose snake they are not even remotely related to hognose snakes but they are related to the beak snakes uh, so they're lamprophiids. Um, the Malagasy cat-eyed snakes, which are like Boiga-esque, but not because Boiga, the Asiatic genus, that's a colubridae, uh, typical colubrid. But the um, Madagascarophis, those guys are lamprophiids. And then the beak snakes, which are wonderfully fantastic. They're closely related to a snake that I've seen people think is a false water cobra called a false cobra. Uh, no, <laughs> you don't want to get bit by one of those. Um, not that you want to get bit by a false water cobra, but if you get bit by the Egyptian false cobra, it, it's very painful and can be medically significant. So, uh, but moving on. And yet I found myself going down a rabbit hole looking at yes. them the other day and thinking, mm-hmm. I want these. Yeah, no, but <laughs> these guys do all kinds of crazy behaviors when it comes to basically for lack of a better word scent marking and they rub you know various objects and and we have um i have some experience with beak snakes matt has some experience with beak snakes but travis went down a rabbit hole with these guys just like the kukris so i'm gonna ask the same question well first of all you introduce ramphiophis to the to the audience and then talk a little bit about like why beak snakes you can keep all these snakes what about them caught your fancy okay well this is you know this is where people get to point fingers at me and be like but you said don't do that (laughs) these were absolutely an impulse buy (laughs) but but in my defense when i saw them and thought hey these are cool the first thing i did was grab my phone and start googling them right there in the show um and again not a ton out there about them but there was enough out there that, you know, very charismatic, very active snakes, um, very intelligent, although sometimes their behaviors will make you question that. Um, and 
again, it just, it, they piqued me as being, you know, kind of a, I grew up out West and out there we have the Western coach whips. This just spoke to me as being very much like a Western coach whip. Um, but coach whips are notorious for not doing well in captivity. They just, they beat the hell out of themselves in cages and stuff because again, that, that smarts and that level of activity. And at least with what I had read up on these in that, you know, that little bit of time was they don't do that. So to me, part of that appeal was, Hey, this, this could be a chance to keep something kind of like a coach whip that isn't going to suffer by being kept in captivity. Um, and so I brought them in and kept, you know, reading up on them and stuff while I was getting them through their quarantine, which was not nearly as intense with them having been captive hatched babies. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, they were easy to get rolling and not have to be crazy treated and pumped around and stuff. Um, but yeah, their behaviors is, you know, again, they very much live up to that intelligent behavior. You you open the tub and if they are hiding, oh, yeah. they pop up and they look and they come to see you. Um, and they are happy to bask out in the open. They really like to do that. Uh, the set marking territories the the self-rubbing behavior which everybody's like i don't get it i don't understand it and the more you read about them and the rest of the families that are associated with them i mean part of me is half inclined to think that it may be a bit of an environmental pressure because the the activity that i have seen the most when they do that is during the high points of summer when it's hotter is when they're self rubbing more. I think that part of this rubbing behavior is to further seal in on their scales, something that helps protect them from dehydration. Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting because they do really bad with too much moisture. They actually will develop blisters from moisture like that. If kept anything close to too wet. Um, so it's a very, it's a very bizarre behavior, uh, but they're they're super charismatic. They're very smart. They've got those giant eyeballs that are always looking at you. Excellent. And they will eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> and they will not be hesitant about it. Like if you open the cage and they think there's a possibility that you might have food, they will come at you. And when I say come at you, it's not like a like a timid, hey, hey, what do you have? It's a, oh, hey, food monkey, and they will come. And this is where the, I say they seem very smart, but sometimes they're very stupid. I have had one just torpedo straight out of the cage. And if you're not fast enough to catch a speeding missile out of the cage, it will bounce off of the floor, and then good luck trying to catch this little speed demon off of the floor. So, Travis, um, having played around with these guys what's your thought on keeping them, whether it be, you know, neonates, uh, juveniles, adults, do you keep them differently? Do you keep them in groups? Uh, what's your general practice in terms of keeping? Um, so I started with the, the neos that I picked up 
kept them in tubs again, just as an establishment factor. But once they were large enough, they went into um, a two by two together. And then they are now up to a four by four. Is that right? Yeah. Four by, well, no, four by, four by three. Sorry. Um, and that's my oxys. I have a single Rostratus. It's a probable male. I'm hoping oh, yeah. to pick up a female later this year. Let's talk about that real quick, um, actually, because sexing these guys is okay. not normal. <laughs> <laughs> we're no. not getting the probe so out. yeah actually that's Probably. that's a that is a very important thing in fact yeah. i've had to i've had to counsel a couple of people on that recently um these species um most of the families that are you know the the Samuides family um they do not they do not pop normally in fact if you try to pop them more than likely you're going to snap their spine and lead to kinking. So if you find somebody who says they've sexed it by popping it, just turn around <laughs> and walk away because you're probably going to be buying a damaged animal. Probes. The hemipenes on males are tiny, 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 tiny. If somebody has probed a male, congratulations, they have just sterilized that male. Mm -hmm. So... There's your two main ways of sexing snakes that go straight out the window. The next one people say, especially with colubrids, is tail length. Um, that really doesn't work with these because about a quarter to a third of the tails on these things is tail length, or body length is tail length. Um, so you can't really say the, the the one with the longer tail. No, no, these these all have just insanely long tails from the vent to the tip um that leaves you with sheds um you can look at the shed for the hemipene shed again super tiny very hair-like uh you can also take your shed and send it to ben morrill and while his test is not 100 percent it's sometimes pretty accurate and works um I sent him the sheds from my original pair, three different sheds, and he tested all of them at the same time. And he said, I think you have a pair because one set of those sheds consistently hit with being male, but it was a very weak male signal. It turns out he was right when I ended up getting eggs this past season. Um, you know, I did not take it as an absolute, but I did take it as a Ben says there's a chance. So I'm hoping that this is accurate. Um, the Restratus that I picked up again, the woman I picked him up from based on the shed and just seeing the little teeny tiny hair like she felt that he was male. But we also sent a shed into Ben. And again, he said, I see a band, but it's not a really good clean one. So those two things together make me say it's probably a male, but until I actually have a female to go with it and I actually produce from it, nobody can say for sure. So I'm glad we covered that because this is not 
an easy group of snakes to sex. That's why a lot of times people no, do the beaks. It's not. And like I said, I I have had people <laughs> contacting me recently, hearing me talk about them, thinking that they sound cool. And they're like, I'm at a show and this guy's got 1.1. And I was like, how did he sex them? Oh, he popped him. I was like, just just walk away right now. You know, oh, he probed him. <laughs> Even no, worse. That's it. That that is a sterilized male right there. You're not going to get anything from it. Just walk away. Yeah, I you know, even from my time of keeping these animals, they do seem to do fairly well in groups, which also lends me to think that you may also have subdominant males too as well in this communal structure, similar to from my experience from keeping Ackies too as well. When you're raising them as a group, you may create this um, structure, community structure within the animals too as well. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel they're kind of, there's no real good correlation between them to anything that's like super common in the hobby. Um, Like I said, they're very coach whippy in behavior, but I think they're very almost garter snake in that sort of kind of communal mentality or water snake. I, I do think they do better in, in pairs or small groups because I think they do have a little bit of social nature to them, which, you know. A lot of people think is very uncommon with snakes, but more and more mm. as we start to see the ecology and study of these animals, we're finding that this there is a lot of social structure to snakes. Hundred percent on that one. And it, that you know, again, in my readings while I was raising them up, that's why once I was ready to graduate them out of tubs, I put them together in a cage because everything that I had read indicated that it's very common to find pairs and groups of these animals. Um, and mine almost always are, you know, they're in the same place and there are so many places for them to hide and the gradients are great for them everywhere. They could very easily both be in separate hides and still be getting the right gradient that they want, but they both are curled up together So in, in terms of feeding um, both neonates as well as juveniles and adults, did the neonates start off on pinks right away without any effort? <laughs> the the neonates that I picked up started off on pinks right away. Um, the ones that I just hatched, I have had a lot of difficulty with. Two took right away, three did not. Um those three all declined. I lost them. I have, I tried everything with them. I tried pinks. I tried gecko tails. I tried scenting pinks. I tried washing pinks. I tried braiding pinks. I tried boiling pinks. (laughs) I tried just tails. So for some reason, these ones were just very stubborn, but the ones that, you know, the initial ones that I brought in, they, they took right to pinks. Um, Again, I think that this is another species, given where they come from and how active and just sight-oriented they are. I would not be in the least bit surprised to find out that they start out on arthropods, you know, spiders, small insects and things. Um, so I would not necessarily be averse to the idea of trying like crickets. I didn't actually go out and deal with that or even cockroaches. They do dig and burrow some, so 
I would not be surprised to find out if they're eating little toads and things too. Hmm. So the, the thermal environment for them. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about they that. They like it. <laughs> <laughs> they like to be warm. Um, but they also like to have cold spots. So my hot spot gets to 110 degrees and they will openly bask underneath that and they will sit there for an hour or more. Um, my cold side is probably about 80-ish or so and they will hang out there. They will go back and forth during the day. Um, they also very much seem to appreciate UV. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean that, you know, they look better, they act better. I, I do my UV on random timers. So it comes on randomly between the hours of 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. But on any given day, you don't know when it will be on and when it will be off. They come out as soon as that thing turns on and they hang out underneath it until it turns off and then they go away. And then when it turns back on again, randomly, they come back out and they go hang out underneath it. So they one, they can sense the UV and two, they actively seek it out. Um, that makes total sense. I also. Yeah, it Based does. Based off the um, Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have said um, in a lot of groups and in a couple of podcasts that there's a part of me that thinks that snakes don't directly UV seek for the sake of UV. I think they UV seek because they've interpreted that that giant flaming ball of warmth in the sky is also putting out UV. So when they're cold and they're looking to thermoregulate, they find the highest UV signature, knowing that that's where also the most direct heat mm -hmm. is going to come from but these snakes you know they will you know they'll hang out under the heat when the uv is off if they want the heat but as soon as the uv comes on they will reposition themselves mm -hmm. to be more under the uv which i've got my uv and my heat in proximal areas to each other but they will reposition themselves to get more under yeah. the uv than just the heat so I, I do think they actively seek UV because it benefits them separately from just the heat factor. Well, it also makes total sense if you're a active pursuit diurnal predator that you be queuing in on the queue that lets you know, okay, you know, we're at maximum UVB radiation. We're probably at maximum UVA radiation, which means our body temp is going to be where it needs to be physiologically for us to go out on a foraging foray that might last a couple hours. You don't want to, yeah. there's a whole lot of cues that have to go that are probably part of that decision-making process in the wild um, that they're going to be denied in a plastic box, whether we like it or not. Um, I've always thought that Ramphiophis is one of the, the main snake genera that could be used to further support this idea of, Let's just give them some UVB. It's not going to hurt them. It may actually help them. And then, you know, behaviorally, it seems to be doing that. We've seen the exact same thing with the um, Rufus. Is that right? The 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 beaks that we're keeping at West Liberty. Um, when the UVB comes on, 
they're just bam, you know, right on it. Yeah, uh, right there too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the Matt gave me a bunch last fall, and we didn't have anywhere to. We didn't have a um. We don't quarantine things in tanks. We quarantine them in racks. In the quarantine, when they were in the racks, they were getting the body temperature, and it was totally what you talked about. You open the tub, and there's this little beak snake rocketing towards the opening. Once they figured out that tub opens, fuzzy shows up. Uh, that got pretty damn exciting. I took on those. I did not want the <laughs> students working with them because we're about to talk kid on venom here in a second. Uh, but we, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Kinsey Guthrie, she keeps one that I will just say forcibly acquired at a reptile show. And that's a story in and unto itself uh, as a neonate fresh, fresh hatchling. And she raised it up and in her office, she gives it UVB and it, she mentions the exact same thing. UVB light comes on. Boom, snakes like immediately under it. UVB light goes off. It's going about, you know, it's day. And the the animals that Matt gave me, they're in a big exo in my office now. And they have a UVB light. Exact same observation. Uh, and I move the UVB light and they follow it. So that's two people now saying that when the UVB comes on, they're they're out there. So pretty, pretty cool animal. So I, I'm assuming then it is safe to say. Once again, naturalistic keeping strategy. Yes. Cool. Um, and with these ones, I use a very similar base mix to the uh, the kukris, um, except I leave out the sphagnum moss and the leaf litter, mm-hmm. and I add in a bit of sand. Um, it retains just enough moisture when I spray it that, you know, it it slowly lets it out over the, you know, the interim, but it does not become wet and boggy all the time. Cause like I said, too much moisture on these guys is just, it's very, 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 very bad. Um, lots of nooks and crannies for them to hide in. They like to cram into little tight spaces. Um, but also lots of areas for them to climb out and bask on because they love to just sprawl out on top of things. Uh, branches, twigs, things like that. Cool. So you mentioned that you bred them. How'd that go down? And that was, that was, there was no intention there. <laughs> I mean, I, I had Not hoped, I had hoped that it was legitimately a pair and I wanted to be able to breed them because they really are cool little animals. Um, but I I just went in and, you know, checking on them, I flipped one of the hides and found the female around seven eggs or five eggs. And so, boom, now I definitely know that I have a sex pair. Uh, <laughs> but I, I can't tell you anything special no, gotcha. about what I did with them other than I just kept them the way I keep them. Um, you know, they are now about six years old. So it took them this long to get up to maturity. They have been together for five, five and a half years. So it's not like they brushed into it yeah. or anything. They, this is how long it took them to just legitimately get to their comfortable breeding size and behavior for them to do it. It's interesting. Um, you know, again, they get, yeah. That, that you you got eggs with the group setting because that people were working with Leo heterodon forever, the Malagasy hognose snakes. And people started having success when they just 
kept them in trios with a male and two females or a reverse trio. Uh, but with like the whole introducing and introduction and the kind of classic Kalubri keeping strategy didn't necessarily, it, it let people bred them. But once this group setting started taking off, got eggs. And so it's kind of interesting that you did the group setting and got eggs with another Lamprophian. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that goes back to, like I said, I think these animals just do naturally better in a little bit more socialized mm-hmm. type of keeping. Um, but again, I can't, I can't give you any specifics as to when things happened or how things happened. It just, you know, I know that they like to hang out together. So obviously, one or two or five times during while them, while them hanging out together, they decided to lock up and. It all worked out well. And just a side note, I'm trying to find this paper, but talking about um, eyesight predators and reptilia, I I feel like something was published related to the cones and rods specifically with these animals. And I want to say it was Carl Jens um, in the 50s. But I can't find it. But I remember them saying something related to um, UV radiation, related to um, movement predators, if you will, related to the way their eye is structured. So because they have the one scalation at the front that helps in their sight seeking predation. And this is just from going down my rabbit hole of my past in physiology and anatomy. <laughs> so there you go. No, there's a lot to be done with with this this group. the The only potential limiting factor, and definitely need to talk about this with them, is that they are epistoglyphous, and they do have Duvernoy secretion. So with the Kukri's, it's question mark. With Ramphiophis, they definitely have something going on there's there so there is no question there do you want to speak to that (laughs) um i will speak to it as much as i can so i did have a degree of hesitation when i picked them up when i read about that um but the guys at outback had all told me you know they don't tend to bite and on the rare occasion they do. It's not that bad. Now I take both of those with a grain of salt on the initial thing. Um, over the past six years of keeping them, I can mostly attest to the first, uh, none of my three animals have ever tried to nip bite come at me in any way shape or form um so i don't feel they are prone to defensively biting that said i may just have animals that are you know have that calm temperament because we all know that animals are all going to have their own individual personalities so you may get one that's just an asshole um i haven't seen any that are like that but that doesn't mean they're not out there um, I will also say again, these guys are smart. Um, you know, I, 
I haven't tried it, but I would bet money that you could target train these things in probably about a week. Mm -hmm. Um, because they're very quick to pick up on behaviors and actions. Um, I will with mine when it's feeding time, I knock on their cage first before I open it. So now they know if I open the cage and I haven't knocked, it's not feeding time. So I don't have to worry about the flying torpedo maneuver anymore. Um, I mentioned that because if you do something to piss these animals off or like harm them, I don't doubt that they will hold a grudge. And so (laughs) if you're keeping them and you are not treating them well, then you may end up with that asshole snake that wants to bite you because it knows you're not a safe person. Um, You know, kind of like crows. If you if you do something to offend a crow, it's going to remember you for the rest of its life. So, you know, scientifically proven, no, but I, I strongly suspect that that would be the case with them. Um, bite reports from them, there are not a ton of them. Most of them tend to be, you know, again, yeah, not that bad. Localized swelling, pain, stuff like that. But there are two that are pretty nasty, um, like necrotizing. Mm-hmm swelling all the way up to the arm one ended up in a hospital i think it's a matter of how the snake bites and positioning you know i think most of the people who've been bitten have probably been mistaken food bites and once they realize that it's your hand they it's just like the quick pop and grab so what those people are getting is not a legitimate dosage of the venom Um, I know that studies on the venom itself show that it is an extremely potent venom. And on the very rare occasion that I have thrown live items in to feed, because these guys do seem to like hunting things down every once in a while, a mouse hopper will drop in about 12 seconds after it's been bit. So... On the one hand, yeah, maybe a venom towards a domestic mouse is not the best key because domestic mice are not exactly the most immunologically robust animals, but that's still a very rapid effect. Oh, yeah. So they, they are definitely animals that need to be treated with respect. I... Do not, you know, do not handle them willy-nilly and treat them like I would my Alterna. Um, In fact, I use a hook most of the time when I'm trying to get them out and manipulate them, which can be very difficult because they don't like to sit still and they don't like to ride a hook at all. But just for basic manipulation, just to try and move them around, a hook is very much recommended for me. Um, I don't recommend just going straight in and trying to grab them. I think that they will have the potential there to take that as an insult or an attack and turn around and bite defensively, and it could end up badly. I have probably the dumbest thing I've done in the past decade with a snake in human care involved one of these. It was a Restrada, I believe. No, the other one. 
Yep. Oxyrhynchus. Oxyrhynchus. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's touch yeah. on that real quick before exactly. your story. Because that's a nightmare. <laughs> both of them, both so there are three species that you will see in the hobby. One is exceedingly rare. You're no longer allowed to import them legally. Those are the rubber punctatus. 99.9% of the time, whatever you're getting is not going to be one of those. You really have to hunt and find those. I only know two people with them. And they're not going to let theirs go easy. Um, the other two that you see are Oxyrhynchus and Rostratus. By far, the most common is Oxyrhynchus. Now, the confusion comes, both <coughs> Oxyrhynchus and Rostratus are called rufous beaked snakes. Um, they are different animals. The Rostratus are very much easy to tell. They have a black eyeliner stripe over their eyes. The oxys do not. Um, as they grow older, the Rostratus also have sort of black uh, pinstripe, not pinstriping, outlining to their scales. They they do develop that kind of coach whip look to them, both in you know their behavior and their actual look. The oxys tend to be more uniformly uh, tan brown with a little bit of pinky orange overlay to them. They do not have the eye stripe. There's slight differences in head structure, but that's the main yes. thing. Um, and so when you hear somebody say they have a rufous beaked snake, it could be either oxy or rostratus. It's most likely the oxyrhynchus. And, and that's what we have are the oxyrhynchus. Yeah. So I, I, was at a local show with my son about, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, I was in a really bad mood. Uh, I w went to the show to get pinkies, and it was not... Well, I don't know. Maybe I am trashing on shows. It was your classic importer show, but not, not the best of importers. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> and everything was half dead. It was everything that was wrong with herpeticulture in one space, and... I really just don't like being in that environment. It makes me, I mean, I love these animals. I love reptiles and amphibians. I'm a conservation biologist. That's my day job. And I'm literally in this show just like, this is everything that's wrong with herpeticulture. And I was waiting to get the mice and the mouse line was huge. So Colin and I are just walking around the show and we ended up at this guy's table. And at the table, no clue who this guy is. Never seen him again. Maybe it's because of what happened, <laughs> but I just looked down. I, mean, I don't know if it was because Colin was there. I don't know if it was because I was in the mood, but I just looked at the guy and was like, you're going to give me those. And he looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Because he had these oxyrhynchus fresh hatchlings and kudos to him for them hatching out, but they were labeled at $300 a piece. And they also looked like they were going to die later that day. Like they were just in the roughest of rough shape. I've never done this before, never done this before, after. And he just kind of looked at me and I was just like, you're just going to give me those. Cause you know, they're going to die. No one's going to pay that kind of money. At least give them a chance. And he was like, okay. And then just slowly holds the deli cup up. And I was like, wow, I just bullied my way into some beak snakes, I guess. I don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> so now I've got these two neonatal beak snakes that are on the verge of death. And on the way home, I'm thinking like, why did you do this? Since these things are going to die, Lord knows what viruses they are holding, given the facilities that they were in. So um, they went into their own room at the university. Like, we have quarantine, and they went into their own room that was multiple doors away from everything. And myself and 
Kinsey, uh, Mrs. Guthrie, took it upon her. We, we, we were just going to save these snakes. It's the only time I've done this. And one of them just crashed immediately and died. I mean, within like two weeks, it was dead. But the other one, we could assist feed it. And it was an interesting little thing because we were taking pinkies and cutting them in half laterally. Uh, and that would fit in the mouth. And, and it would actually go about, you know, once we could get it into the mouth and put the snake down, run away, we were doing that one. It would then swallow the mouse, the pinky, and we, you know, everything's good. So I was the guy that was doing the, the assist feeding. And I it was like the fourth or fifth time that we did that. And I've got the snake. And as I was working the pinky, I couldn't get the forceps to work. So I had to use my hands. Um, and I had read the paper you're talking. I know the exact paper you're talking about because I knew about the, I think it's metalloproteases or something that are in there. And mm -hmm. as I was working the pinky in, everything was cool. And I somehow managed to have this. The snake did not want to bite me, but my finger ended up being embedded in its <laughs> opistoglyphous tooth. Because as I was working the pinky down in there, and it's kind of doing the, you know, that whole walk in the jaws over the pinky. Everything's cool. My phone rang. And I got distracted. And I just ever so gently moved my right hand. And I moved it. I thought I was moving it away from its mouth. I was moving it into its mouth. This is why Zach doesn't work with bitus or cobras or mall. I, I don't trust myself. I will never work with those animals. I have kudos and mad respect. Uh, and this incident sealed it. And I ended up inadvertently getting that damn little itty bitty fang stuck on my finger. And I can attest to this fact immediately. I, I felt, and this is not, a, this is like an eight inch snake. This is fresh out of the egg, not even months old. Immediately, I started feeling pins and needles. Like the sensation you have when your foot's asleep. I was feeling it in the tip of my finger. And so I got, you know, the snake off my hand, um, put him down and he proceeded to eat the pinky mouse, which I was really happy about. And I put my hand underneath some extremely hot water because i thought that might break down proteins or something and then i just went and sat in my office and this is the only time i've done anything of this nature uh and nothing happened but i did get some swelling and i can say well actually something did happen it happened on my right index finger and that last knuckle in my finger it swelled up a little bit and it was kind of arthritic for about a month and that was a fresh out of the egg neonate that i somehow managed to get stuck on my finger it wasn't the snake's fault it was not a bite um but it was on there for about 15 seconds so uh very stupid it's the dumbest thing i've ever done and i taught myself that i'm not working with hots so i don't <clears throat> uh but anyway i can attest to the fact that 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 was a little one i don't i don't know what the hell would happen if a big one you know an adult was able to grab you um so I did want to attest to the fact that uh, I would consider these things hot. I would not be treating them like a corn snake or a king snake or anything because that's that is the most intense, I guess, um, venomous interaction I've had with a snake ever, and it was from an oxyrhynchus. So that was less than two months old. So there it is. Treat him with respect. <laughs> and don't be a dumbass like so. me. <laughs> so, anyway. All righty. Are there any final thoughts you have for this 
wonderful, wonderful group of snakes. And congrats on getting them to uh, to reproduce. Oh, well, I do have one question. What temp did you incubate the eggs at? Um, I kept them at room temps too, but then it started getting... I started second guessing myself given how warm the animals like it and the time of year that I got mine and it was starting to cool down. So I did end up putting them in an incubator set to 82. Okay. And then no surprises. Um, nothing on. No, no surprises. They all hatched out fine. Now, when, when they were laid, I will say they had no veins to them whatsoever and I thought they were duds. But I decided to just set them up anyways and give them some time just in case. And a week later they had become fully veined and everything. So don't, if you do get into these enough that you have gotten them to breeding and you get eggs, don't just candle them immediately, see no veins and be like, ah, duds and throw them out. Give them actual time to vein up. Um, Look for, as as the crested gecko people call it, look for the Cheerio of life. <laughs> there's there's a slight little ring at the top of the egg, and the, I saw that on all of them, and that was what kind of convinced me of this. This could actually be good viable eggs. They just need a little more time to vein up, and yeah, that's exactly what happened. Nice. So on that, any final thoughts on Ramphiophis for, um, for the audience? summation again don't don't go holding them because not smart (laughs) um try to keep socially and definitely definitely cage keep them because they will do so much better um i would dare say even go larger than you think um you know there's a part of me that wants to take my 1.1 and try to get them in something like a six foot cage just because I know they would use every square inch of it. Cause they use every square inch of that four foot cage. Um, Very cool. They're, they're fun and fascinating little animals, definitely more active and different than a lot of the things you see out there. So if people are looking for an active snake for a naturalistic Xeric desert like setup. This might be the high. would be the ones. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Don't overfeed them. These ones overfeed very easy too. Um, you know, small meals, they'll burn through them, but don't just keep pumping them full of rats and rats and rats because they will get fat and a fat beak snake is almost as ugly as a fat kukri. They're just, they're not, they're not appealing. Um, you know, I do a lot of diet diversity for these guys. They'll get a, a hopper they'll get a chicken neck they'll eat chicken hearts they'll eat tilapia they'll eat they will eat just about anything very cool all right well, i think we did it are we good i'd say we're good i'm good all right yeah so if well well first and foremost you have a podcast sir do you want to talk a little I bit do. about that <laughs> a little bit about your uh <laughs> podcast that'll mean something here in a second so myself uh james lewis and jason Milleradovich do the pint-sized podcast pint-sized reptiles podcast um we tend to focus on smaller species because it seems a lot of the hobby is focused on you know 
kind of the larger animals and things that go in tubs because, you know, they're bigger and you don't really have the mentality of the small side of things here other than, you know, like every once in a while you hear about the dart frogs and things. Um, but we decided to kind of focus on those smaller things, dart frogs, day geckos, rubber boas, things that do well in smaller and naturalistic style enclosures, things that you might be able to keep, you know, in your bedroom, in your living room, on your desk, um, so that you can have that little piece of nature rather than just snake in box. Um, even the way a lot of people keep in, you know, four foot cages, if you've got a python in a four foot cage, most people aren't keeping that in like a, a bioactive or a naturalistic type cage. It's still just a fairly Spartan thing. Um, so the focus is on that. Now we do, you know, kind of diverge here and there in terms of pint size. Like uh, we did an episode which was very different from what I had gone into it with, but uh, we talked a lot about turtles and, you know, even a small turtle needs a lot more space than you know, a smaller snake or a smaller frog would, but a small turtle that requires a lot of space is not the same as a sulcata. Yeah. So, you know, looking at smaller turtles is still an option if you want to do a turtle, you know, yeah, it's not a turtle you can keep in a 10 gallon tank, but a turtle that you can keep, you know, on a six foot by six foot turtle table in your, house is a lot better than having to deal with a sulcata that's going to tear up your entire basement and destroy your toilet like Patrick McKnight's <laughs> sulcata did. Um, so we look at things like that. Uh, awesome. No, definitely plan on checking that one out. I'm, I've got a lot of podcasts listening coming up and I, I like to line them up and then just kind of like you do with a Netflix series, just basically listen to all of them in a row. So yeah, I'm 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 happy that you know the whole NPR and most of the THP pods are available on YouTube because that's about the only way I get through everything that I need is those ones are on at work and I just you know have my head my earbuds in while I'm at my desk or I've just got them cranked up when I'm sitting there in the hood mm -hmm. and the computers behind me I can listen to them that way <laughs> because if I was only reliant on the time you know driving to and from work or when I'm home on the weekends I would never get through all the yeah, podcasts. All right. If people want to find you to talk kukri or beak snake, how do you um, You can they find do? me on Facebook. I'm Travis Wyman. I am not the motocross racer <laughs> who spells his name the same way as me. Um, so please don't message him asking about snakes. I'm sure he, one, will not know what you're talking about, and two, probably won't appreciate it very much. Um, you can email me, asplundii, A-S-P-L-U-N-D-I-I, at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Instagram at snakes underscore n underscore bakes. There we go. I'm certain people, if we didn't pique people's interest in these two snakes or snake genera with this one, I don't know what we need to do. So this was a great one. So thank you for coming on, Travis. We appreciate having you. Not a problem. You. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Certain we will have you on uh, in the future. Um, if people want to find me, uh, you can find me on Facebook at Zach Loafman, L-O-U-G-H-M-A-N. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Dr. Crawdad. And if you're, I'm going to say, I keep saying it. I'm just going to keep saying it. Uh, and all of us went to grad school, so we all know this experience. Anybody wants to do herpetoculture for a master's degree, please, for the love of God, hit me up. 
Um, we're, we're looking to take on more students and we, the facilities at West Liberty just keep getting better and better to do this kind of research. And, um, the future is bright. Uh, that is all I have to say on that front. And then I do want to say one more well, time, say with, oh, go ahead. I was going to say with, with, with all the stuff that, you know, gets talked about on THP and snakes and stogies and NPR, I think. I think those guys are coming up with more and more projects that they want to see you yeah. and your crew do. So you need those bodies to pull off these experiments. No, I, I listen to podcasts and I'll, and I'll hear like, Oh wow. Loafman can do that. And then I'm sitting here thinking all I need are the warm bodies and we can, you know, start cranking this stuff out. So, and then on that same token, we would like to Matt and I thank NPR network for, hosting our podcast, uh, which is definitely a two-hour break from our busy lives that we absolutely love recording. So on that token, Matt, where can people find you? Uh, you can follow uh, Sarpamitra on Facebook and Sarpamitra USA on Instagram. All righty. So with that being said, thank you for listening. And be it day, night, morning, have a good day. Later, y'all.